You are mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore with Trash Radio. Bakabazi by Roman D'Ambrosio. An old nursing home. A young man lights a birthday candle on a cake for an old man in a wheelchair. Happy birthday, Grandpa. Well, thank you very much. I hope this is my last. Don't say things like that. I give you a nice gift, and you say things like that. You give everyone a reason to roll in their graves. I'm 84. I thought there would be more people around. You have some people. Mom doesn't like you, but you got some people here. Do they talk to you here? A couple of Squatamalans come around. They work the garden. I had them put some carnations outside my window. That's nice. I walked around before coming in. You got a nice garden here. Mary and her garden. Life of shine and ease. Picking flowers in the sun. Among the daisy and peas. It's lavender and peas. What? She sits among the lavender and peas. That's how the joke is supposed to go. Oh, I don't know whatever bullshit riddle it is. Think I remember anything with these pills? All right, Pa, just drop it. It wasn't like this in the army. In the army, we were just worried about not starving. Oh, shut up. That wasn't what the army was like. No, but it could have. We were close to death. I've been close to death. You were a spy, and not even a good one. That's not true. We won the Cold War because of me. We won the Cold War because communism failed. It was going to happen anyway. You didn't do anything. It was because of me. I went to Russia 11 times. Went to Jerusalem 16. You know what happened to all the Israeli arms dealers? They all live in Philadelphia now. I can't make any sense of it. Well, I mean I can. Pennsylvania is a beautiful state, though the people are rotten. You mix Quaker with Shaker, and all you get is jackass. It is beautiful, lush with green, with forests, this big state no one talks about. You know, most Americans don't believe in climate change because they've probably driven through Pennsylvania. You could drive across the country and it's green and nice. 
If Pennsylvania was in Europe, there'd be millions dead fighting over it. Whatever. The land is here. It's the mines that are melting. And the new stuff rising? This campus crap? What an honor it would be to see it fall off the face of the earth. I doubt we'll be so lucky. Grandpa, I wanted to come and talk about the war. War? Who cares about war? It's freedom that matters. What? You know what freedom is? Freedom is how free your enemy is. Don't forget that. Okay. I don't know where this Rush Revere true blue patriot shit is coming from, but it's not from the same man who taught me how to shoot fire water off a barrel in Alaska. You want to be a captain? Why don't you go back to Afghanistan? That was seven years ago. I'm in school now. What school? Law school in Nashville. Oh, God bless. It's easier to imagine you in Union than on a college campus. They hand out these leftist flyers on campus. How do we bring black and white workers together? How do we bring red and yellow workers together? You can't make any of that shit work. I know. I was in reconnaissance. All the smart Jews controlled the Soviet Union. If they couldn't make it work, you can't make it work. I'm not a leftist. I don't care about that crap. I'm trying to make a career. Impressive careers are for losers. I thought you would have learned that by now. Well, what I did stopped being fun. And if you're not having fun, then it doesn't really count, does it? No, it doesn't. And I can't actually party like at a real college. I'm there to study, not for fun. Well, why don't you join a club? Maybe. AA cures alcoholism. It didn't help my other problems. My first wife met her current husband in AA. Before grandma? No, it was after that. Bree and I met in AA. Ah, yes. She's got that horrible disease. Her ass looks exactly like her face. Come on. She's dirty, and she looks like a transvestite. You only met once. Bree, what a disgusting name. Like cheese. I bet she smells. She did smell. I should have listened to you about her. Women will discriminate over who they sleep with, but they'll marry anybody. I knew a homewrecker in the army. Big arms. Could barely move, he was so muscle-bound. 
slept with his officer's girlfriend, always with the moves. And he stayed that way. He was always a pretty boy, even to the end. I mean, is there anything more pathetic than a handsome old man? He's dead? Why don't you stay around? Let me show you my photo album full of ghosts. They're dead anyway. What does it matter? I really need to ask you something. Humor an old man for once, will ya? Please, I want to stop. I've been getting old, and the world is changing. The slow tempo of the old days is gone. My balls hurt, maybe cancer. I don't care. You haven't had the best life, and I'm sorry for that. There are things you inherited from me that I wish you didn't. So I want to share as much time as possible with you. To share what's left of my life. Don't try to use this as some deathbed confession, alright? I came here to talk. I'm setting the agenda. You need an agenda to talk to your own grandfather? That's not how it should be. In Afghanistan, they have this thing called bakabazi, means boy play. They dress up the local boys, make them do belly dancing, and sleep with them. One of our partners was involved with it. We walked in on him. And did you kill him? No, we looked the other way. It's their problem anyway. I don't know. You think if that kid grows up, he'd be pissed we did nothing? Probably not. He'd be more busy with the man who did the thing in the first place. He was an older guy. I looked at his file. I think he worked with you in the 80s. Nothing intensely, but just enough that your name came up. There was a report about some local policemen who even the Taliban didn't prosecute. There was a pipeline from the mountains into Kabul. Mujahideen had been against it, but a few still practiced. The leaders were too distracted with opium and arms trading to invest time in it. Our partner was a teenager during the Soviet invasion. I found him later at BC. He was apologetic, but I didn't really care about that. In fact, I still don't. If a child wants to be destroyed, that's not something I can care about. But I do care about you. And I care about this family. And I can't have something like that on my family's history. Do you understand, sir? Bullshit. You mean every disrespect. You come past the nice Mexicans who plant my nice carnations to give me a crap cake and hurl war crime accusations like their tissue paper. I'm not hurling. I took my time. The reports. They have your approval on them. Come show me. Show me the shit report.
and we can see where it lies. But until then, you have no respect coming here and throwing that crap on me. Just get out, please. Grandpa, out. The sun leaves. A pause. The grandpa goes to a phone on his night table. He dials a number from an address book. It answers. Dr. Dakovsky, it's Rex. I, uh, just wanted to call. See how Philadelphia was treating you. Look, uh, we should meet for a drink soon. Something I want to talk about. Something to do with the Sadiq. You know what I mean. Give me a call. Hey, you. No, not you. The other you. Anatomy of the Heads is the best band you're not listening to right now. What you need to do is go to A of the H. You're welcome. Cereal is Human Dog Food by Danny Sober. As a general rule, central banking reliably devalues currency to the point of destroying real wealth. This can be offset by physically altering people, i.e. their bodies, perceptions, to be okay with this. For example, BT corn is very different from corn grown in 1930. The corn itself, the soil amendments used, the processing techniques, etc. But the corn looks the same to the average person. The only thing that changes is illness reliably produced in the consumer. America is doing well, as people are generally fine with one out of two people getting cancer. That's moving up to three out of four by 2045. And like one out of five kids having a chronic condition which requires drugs, etc., etc. Molecular biology, biochemistry in the U.S. was specifically developed by eugenists for eugenics, primarily through radical emphasis of organic chemistry, protein chemistry. Coordination complexes to inorganic components were only dealt with in enzymology. Again, protein chemistry, which overlook much more exotic biophysics in the body. For example, bone is a light-emitting diode operating on a collagen proton conductor triple helix. These exotic biophysics would truly show how many drugs actually work and indeed 
would provide the opportunity for much better medicine as well as clearly defining what and why industrial processes destroy health. In this way, medicine has to be captured in order for monopolies that are openly killing people to survive. This also explains why Caltech and Rockefeller University basically almost single-handedly set national graduate school standards for biochemistry and molecular biology. Cereal is human dog food. It's an open question if these monopolies are truly required by the state. Ballad of Jean Henry by Nick Dove. Those who say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder never saw the work of Jean Henry. From the boring and the bullshitting to the crazed and the damned, there was scarcely a soul that could gaze upon his art and not find something with which to inflame it. Some received comfort, others joy, still more rage or regret or sorrow. But emotional enrapture was always inevitable. Henry pieces, thought-evoking cacophonous feelings were uniform in their supreme capability to captivate. Postmodernity had been conquered, flayed, and funneled by a creator whose like hadn't been seen since the days of Adam. From on high in his Brooklyn Tower, Jean lived with his head in the clouds thin of frame, but thick of lust. He awoke amongst the acolytes he'd privileged to lie the night, and emerged from the polypile to light his first galoise. Spitting smoke out his mouth, he stared into the gray beyond, his view foggy, but his vision vibrant and alive. Today, He'd dabble with landscapes and explore Thorovianism. Eleni, he called, signaling to his favorite muse, a Greek spitfire whose embers ran nearly as hot as his own. Bread, paper, prick, she snapped back, sitting herself up and staggering into the kitchen turning with a plate of baguettes and butter, but wearing vinegar on her face. Leaning in to give her a kiss as she looked on and away, 
Sean noticed the news was absent. Where's the Times? he asked, nibbling on his loaf, just enough to satiate his stomach, but keep his body hungry and mind sharp. Has it not come? Not come, Eleni said, combing her hair and looking at herself in the void of the mirror. Jean groaned. Go tell Abbas to fetch it. He can't, she replied. Still out. Carla, then. The same, she said, annoyance radiating from her voice. Jean's ire rose with hers. Fuck. Then you go get it. Her composure, already shaky, broke. No, get it your fucking self. Bitch. Jean threw his hands up in the air. She wasn't as differential as the others, but the mirrority was so banal, making me go out so ghastly, he carved putting on a black hood and sunglasses to avoid being mobbed or robbed and leaving his loft's sanctity. He descended the elevator and darted across the street, the doorman recognizing him but no one else, handing the bodega boy three sacajuillas, he rushed home shooting Eleni a look as he sat and turned to the art section. His eyes sharpened further when they glanced the headline. Henry Art debuts at MoMA. What the fuck? He hadn't signed off on that. Jean was floored, muttering curses and inner monologuing. Transcendentalism would have to wait. This transgression demanded immediate attention. He grabbed the phone and rang Ted Dawson, the museum's director. Like most, he answered immediately. Mr. Henry, it's a pleasure to hear from you. He wheezed with the requisite reverence. I'm sorry to have missed you last month at the gala. You know, Susan. Well, you know, she was... Jean cut him off. Quit your shit. I saw the paper. I beg your pardon, responded Dawson. You think you can showcase my creations without my express clearance? heard an audible sigh across the wire. Sir, I believe you are mistaken. You better hope my solicitors think so, Jean retorted. Sir, sir, it is not your art. Henry Art, the curator pleaded. But Henry Art capitalized and bolded. What's the fucking difference? Er, well, you, Mr. Henry, are, are, 
a man. And uh, Henry is is a machine. A robot? Jean let the breath out his mouth and tried to stop taking the air out of Dawson's. A robot that paints? An AI. An AI, sir. An AI that generates. Generates? Jean asked, confused and a little bemused. Yes. Yes, that's right. Henry is a MoMA-created application trained on complex algorithmic protocols to receive aesthetic input and produce artistic output. Sean's eyebrows raised out of the corner of his mouth went sideways. So you give it a prompt and it paints a picture? Precisely, sir. And why does it have my name? The board voted and landed on it, sir. We find it both charming and comforting. That's my likeness. I can still sue you. With all due respect, sir, there are many other Henrys. Henry Matisse, Henry Rousseau. Oh, don't make me laugh. Jean chuckled, his eye roll apparent even if unseen. Have fun with your He was wrong on all counts. As the months passed, Henry was a bona fide hit. The new cynosure of the art world, dominating conversations big and small and making spellbinding works with incredible speed. It didn't matter who you were, a downtrodden sophisticate, a doom-scrolling shitposter, a Biden supporter, or a bright Martin mourner. Everybody could be an artist, and everyone a little god. The old creators, their hands ever more obsolescent, and their deification never more challenged, fell into deep depressions. Even with his aesthetes having abandoned him, Jean could not be counted amongst them. He wouldn't be Hockney or Richter or any of these soon-to-be-dead silence. Skillful enough for a passing thought, but not a public fixation. His greatness was undeniable, even if his goodness suspect, and he demanded it be recognized for now and all time. He issued a challenge to the MoMA, in three days' time, have their Henry read and scan and analyze his entire body of work and make replicas a thousand times over. In that same span, he would paint a masterpiece whose primacy couldn't be questioned, and yet again, subjugate 
their subjective opinions to his objective brilliance. They accepted and formed a committee to pass judgment. Jean set to work, taking his usual vitamins, a little E for squashing uncertainty, mixed with some powdered K to plumb the depths of his unconscious and slow the flow of the clock. He flurried about the canvas, stroking and brushing and dabbing and tabbing. Five hours later, his first attempt was complete. Eh, he thought. Incredible, yes. The second attempt was similar, too heavy-handed and raw. The third, too fine-tuned and manicured. The fourth and fifth were miserable, with flaws not bearing mention. Off to burn they went. Time ticked away. Jean's home was warm, but his body was in a cold sweat, his heart pounding, and his face made gray from supplemental starvation. Eleni, the only devotee who hadn't dispersed, gibbed him. Jean, she said, you look like shit. Come to me. I can't, he replied. I must keep working. It can wait until tomorrow. I haven't felt you in any eternity, she mewed, shifting her tone. Be quiet, he shushed. Procrastination is the antagonist of perfection. If I fuck you, I fuck myself, and I fuck the human spirit along with it. The human spirit, she yawned. Eleni didn't understand. If he lost, so did man's control over his own inspiration. The instruments they'd used for cultural construction since the dawn of sentience would be made useless and true artistry relegated to being a schlubby hipster's hobby. Jean needed to win for himself and for humanity. He didn't want it to come to this, but he suspected he was out of options. He needed his ringer, his PED, his vitamin C. He raided his medicine cabinet, lying, snorted the psychotic residue.
The Life and Times of Victor Krakowski by Michael Van Gore. I was recently approached by an elderly man while waiting for a train. Initially, I expected him to be a homeless man seeking spare change. However, my assumption was quickly proven wrong when he began recounting an incident where he helped a woman with excessive luggage board the train. Impressed by his act of good citizenship, I applauded his kindness, unknowingly setting the stage for a three-hour conversation. As it turns out, he wasn't really interested in me at all. The old man's name was Victor Krakowski and proceeded to tell me his entire life story. And since I got to know him, now you must know him too. Victor was born in 1958 in Kyrgyzstan, a part of the Soviet Union at the time. His family hailed from German heritage and operated a small vineyard in Kyrgyzstan. Fearing the oppression of communism as land and business owners, many of his family members and fellow townsfolk fled back to Germany. The mayor of their village, as well as other civil servants, were shot at the border due to their political ties. While some of his family reconnected with their German roots, Victor stayed behind, joining the Red Army and pursuing studies in agriculture. He finished 20th in his class and was assigned a job in a small village that failed to bring him much joy. Nevertheless, he gradually accumulated a small farm, a car, and even generated extra income from winemaking. He also got married and promised his wife that one day they would move to Germany, where he had a significant number of relatives. Victor named his two sons, Martin and Rudolf, deliberately giving them very German names to ensure they wouldn't be mistaken for Russians in Germany. With the fall of communism in 1989, Victor and his family seized the opportunity to go to Germany. Thankfully, the presence of relatives made the process relatively smooth, as it was perceived as a homecoming rather than migration. He found work as a package inspector for a large shipping company since Germany did not recognize his university degree. His two sons studied in Germany, but struggled academically, frequently indulging in cannabis use that left them complacent and unproductive. Victor even attempted to join his son in smoking cannabis, but he found no pleasure in doing so. Instead, he advised his son that a shot of vodka would be a better way to unwind.
despite being constantly labeled as a Russian in various social settings, Victor took solace in the fact that his sons embraced their heritage. However, life in Germany was not without its challenges. His Kyrgyzstani wife struggled to adjust, particularly due to their confined living arrangements in an apartment without any land or business to their name. Eventually, she returned to Kyrgyzstan with one of their sons, where she passed away in her late fifties. Victor chose to remain in Germany, purchasing the small apartment they had resided in, a decision he regards as the best one he ever made. As of 2023, Victor Krakowski finds himself in the midst of retirement, grappling with the challenges of adjusting to an abundance of free time. Estranged from his sons and without a wife, he laments the absence of companionship and someone to share his thoughts with. He also faced a recent health setback, a stroke caused by the removal of a severely clogged neck artery, leaving a prominent scar on his neck, paralyzed on his right side. He encountered considerable difficulties with movement. In Germany, his doctor delivered a disheartening prognosis, informing him that the chances of recovery were slim and that he should accept his condition. However, harboring doubts about German doctors, he reached out to an old comrade from the Red Army who recommended a traditional healer in Siberia. To his surprise, Victor's army friend had achieved great success in the aftermath of communism had graciously arranged and financed his trip to Siberia for a traditional treatment encompassing herbal teas, acupuncture, prayer, and meditation. Although initially skeptical, Victor, with nothing to lose, embarked on this unexpected journey. To his astonishment, the treatment proved effective, restoring his right side to its former functionality. Nonetheless, the ongoing need to visit the traditional healer poses a financial burden on his modest pension. Additionally, he must undertake annual travels across Germany to renew his visa which is how I crossed paths with him. These voyages strain his finances, but Victor counts himself fortunate to have his loyal old Red Army buddy who continues to offer assistance and support. Commenting on current political matters Victor ardently expresses his belief that, quote, 
all this democracy and human rights stuff is the same as the nonsense we endured in the Soviet Union, end quote. He dismisses the war in Ukraine as a sham and adamantly insists that he could never develop any romantic or sexual interest in another man. Listen up, ladies and jerks. If you're sick of pre-manufactured, mass-produced reading materials, then check out Cars and Women magazine, North America's premier publication for unpublished and rejected literature from the sticky underbelly of the internet hate machine. The Prophetess by Ibn Kabar. It is 2014, and you are a halal Salafi bint with a passion for Palestine. So much passion, in fact, that you decide to go with your local masjid on a humanitarian trip to Gaza. Every day you spend playing with cute Palestinian kids and cursing the Zionist entity for giving them such hard lives. You pray much longer than the rest of your aid group. You need extra time to say all the duas, the personal requests for Allahumma to destroy the Zionists and free those cute little kids and the Ummah, the Islamic nation in its entirety. Isha prayer has ended hours before, but you are still in the masjid praying and prostrating. You hear a noise, like a pop that echoes through the warm evening air. But your prayer will not be interrupted that easily. Allah is all-powerful, and whatever that pop was, He controls the world and will keep you safe. Subhanu Rabil Allah. Subhanu Rabil Allah. Subhanu Rabil Ah. Then it happens. The earth shakes and heaves, and an explosion pierces the air, shaking your tiny body like a feather. You hear the ceiling of the masjid collapse, but only partially, and figure the best thing to do is to continue praying to Allah, hoping for his salvation. You sit up, then continue your sujood, thanking Allah in your heart for keeping you alive. But your prayer is cut short again as your heart sinks. You hear the door of the masjid burst open and loud shouting in a language you do not understand. You pray for a martyr's death and for Allah's help to accept your fate with joy. The shouting comes closer. They have noticed you. It is about to happen. This very day, you will get to join the righteous Muslims in paradise reaping the reward only a true shaheed ever experiences. 
You say the Shada, the testimony of your faith. Ashadu Allah ilaha ilallah washadu. Bang. You are knocked onto the floor, sprawled out on your back. You have taken a rifle butt to the head, and it feels throbbing, but you are still very much alive. You hear shouting over you, and despite the dark room and your dizzy and spinning head, you can make out the forms of a platoon of IDF soldiers. You try to curse them, but your mouth does not open. You prepare for Istishad, the martyrdom you so crave, but even that escapes you. You are pinned to the ground by a dozen strange hands as the platoon leader inspects you for weapons. Yakaba, Yasharmuta, you hear them yell, slut and whore, the only words you understand in the volley of some unfamiliar and hostile language. You feel your body throb and tighten, blood streams from innumerable holy wounds, but you take comfort in the thought that though they can hurt your body, your soul belongs to Allah, the Most High, and is untouchable by unclean mortal hands. But it is not only their hands. Soldiers spending long hours on the battlefield, away from wives and girlfriends, are never satisfied with just that. You hear the sound of a zipper, and your body clenches. You want to fight back, but you are too weak to move. Your whole life, you had dreamed about your wedding night and the beauty and sanctity of giving yourself to your husband. But inalahu, Allah kuli shayin kadir. Allah is powerful above all things. A wife and mother are precious to Allah. But a shaheed is most precious of all. A puddle grows below you as the platoon leader climbs onto you and his three-day-old sweat and cigarette smell assaults your nose. In broken Arabic, he sneers into your ear. Al-yum ana jazek. Mamguk. Today, I am your husband. Congratulations. You try to spit but can only muster up some guttural, inhuman noise from deep within your throat. The platoon leader slaps you across your wounded face, and even that last gasp of resistance falls silent. You feel your body split open, like a thousand knives cutting into your pelvis as the cursed Zionist enters you, thrusting violently. Back in Britain, you could barely even stand a paper cut, but in Gaza, you know that every thrust 
and every stab destroying your body is blessed by Allah, the father of martyrs. An angelic calm washes over you as the clay vessel your soul is housed in tears. Blood mingles with liquid joy below you. You imagine yourself in Jannah, seated next to beloved relatives and holy prophets. The sweat and cigarettes replaced with jasmine and myrrh. And the soldiers assaulting you as Gilman and Huriat, servants and handmaidens of the righteous. Pressure builds inside your broken body as the thrusting continues and you feel like a balloon about to burst. This must be Allah, come to take his martyr from this earth, you think, and smile. The balloon bursts, your life and soul leak out from below you and you are transported to the highest reaches of heaven. An angel sings to you, the blessed Shahid, for whom all of creation was made, and you, decked out in the finest robes of divine light, strut proudly before prophets and saints. And then, crack, with another rifle butt to the head, you are dragged back to earth, quivering in a pool of blood, semen, and vaginal fluid. The platoon leader has finished, and now the privates get their turn. One soft tear trailing from your empty eyes at paradise lost. You feel a hand stroke your face. This is not the rough hand of the battle-hardened, chain-smoking platoon leader. It reminds you more of your own hand, well-lotioned and taken care of. A woman's hand. What could a woman be doing here? Then, you remember how the Zionists, in their immeasurable wickedness, take women from their natural state as wives and mothers, slap ugly green uniforms on them, and send them out to battle. Allah will surely punish such a perversion of the natural order. But women are kind and sweet, and maybe this woman will dress your wounds and end your suffering. Then, once you have healed, you can go back to Gaza and fight for real. You feel the soft, delicate hand clench around your neck, blocking the flow of air. Maybe this nice woman will at least help you die rather than live with the disgrace of having been violated. But then you feel it, her other hand following in the footsteps of the platoon leader's dick, all her fingers at once reaching all the way into the innermost recesses of your bruised and abused vagina. And you realize this woman is no different from him. Fortunate is the one who suffers fisabil ilah, 
for Allah's sake. Aravim has too many children. You hear her growl and her ugly occupier accent. I take yours away. You try to struggle, but your strength has preceded you to heaven. All you have left is patience and endurance for suffering you learned from your religion. But even that melts away as Thalia's fist smashes into your cervix with the force only someone who faces death every day and blames you for it can call upon. Talia was not always like this. The 5-4 bronze-colored girl was once kicking soccer balls with her friends and batting her eyes at the boys of her town, dreaming of a husband and career as a nurse. She was always naturally athletic, so when she turned 18 and all her friends went to their mandatory military service, she decided to join a combat unit. After all, the hottest guys serve in combat units. How could she have known a war would break out and she would be dodging bullets in Gaza and going weeks without a manicure? And now, to add insult to injury, her crush, the platoon leader, who had always been far too busy shooting and being shot at to say anything to her besides barking orders, had just blown his load in some smelly terrorist whore. That bitch was dead meat. You gasp for air as her hand clenches around your throat. By this point, you have forgotten even to thank Allah for martyrdom. Your cervix feels like it has exploded, and you are in pain from head to toe. Your thoughts form an incoherent jumble, and, if Allah is watching, he does not appear to you. All you are is pain and stolen breath, and even that will end soon. But, just as the dark chill of oblivion climbs up your body, Dahlia removes her hand from your throat. Dying is too good for you, Shagmuta, she snarls and spits in your face. She says something in Hebrew to the soldiers behind her, and they whisk your numb and bleeding half-corpse, drifting in and out of consciousness into a van speeding away from Gaza. You pass out and dream of angels abandoning you. Your martyrdom failed. Three days later, you wake up in a hospital attached to tubes and intravenous fluids. You hear the scared voices of your parents, flown all the way to this hostile and unfamiliar country, and a doctor explaining to them how you were injured in an airstrike, and only the heroism of a platoon of courageous young soldiers managed to save you from certain death. Your parents coo with gratitude and turn to you. 
will bring your rescuers here so you can thank them in person. Your head throbs, and a million and one wounds scream out from all over your body. But one word flashes before your eyes like a prophetic vision. More. Interlude by Hister Grant. The sun is punched through behind the sky, behind a hole. The sky is red. On the ground, it is hot. Birds on fire fly in the sky. The massive sun sees through the hole that looks out onto a world ablaze and hangs in the sky. The sky is fire. The birds swoop around the sun. The sun, just behind the sky, sees through the hole onto the world of fire, burning trees, burning cars, explosions. The sun behind the sky that is a blistering inferno. What's up, ladies and jerks? You like things that don't suck. So for more of the finest garbage this side of Geek Space, come on down to the Trash Radio Patreon. I can't promise that my buttery, trashy voice will stop rearranging things in your living room when you're not home. 